so I was in Berkeley when they called the winner of the presidential election. They didn't call me uh, personally. They just called it. And uh, it was Joe Biden. I hope I didn't spoil that for you. Uh, I'm not sure. Not sure if you're hanging on to a weird hope, uh, but it's Joe Biden. And uh, we were all very excited. And there was a lot of um, dancing in the streets of Berkeley, a lot of uh, car horns blaring, a lot of people cheering, um, people just sort of relieved. You could feel it. It was wonderful. Everybody was very excited. But I noticed something in the conversations that were happening. People were talking about Georgia. Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. Kept coming up. Thank God for Georgia. And yeah, it's true. Thank God for Georgia. Georgia did come through in a big, major, and unexpected way. And I thought to myself, I need to talk to somebody about Georgia. And so... That's exactly what I did. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. You say I miss the old ways, but not like that. Dog whistling fool of a king. Don't you know that old Dixit land is more than of my guest today on the program, Amy Ray. Let me tell you a little bit about Amy Ray. Well, when it comes to Georgia, there's no one better to talk to than Amy Ray. The Decatur-born singer-songwriter may have started her collegiate career at Vanderbilt, but her coming back home to attend Emory in Atlanta has been a kind of metaphor for her life. She's been all around the world, but she always comes back to Georgia. Now, Amy is one half of the internationally beloved Grammy Award-winning band The Indigo Girls, and along with Emily Sailors, they've put out 15 studio albums, including 2020's marvelous effort Look Long. Ray, who has put out six solo albums, including 2018's awesome effort Holler, well, she's a punk at heart, and she's collaborated with everyone from the Butchies to Joan Jett. Armed with a lippy snarl and folk finesse, Ray is truly one of the greatest American songwriters out there, and her lyrics are always literary, socially conscious, and deeply felt. Her new single, Tear It Down, part of which you just heard, tackles the spirit of Southern Rebellion and its complicated history. Written with Nina Simone and Billie Holiday in mind, on this track, Ray grapples with what it truly means to be anti-racist by deconstructing the symbols and myths that she feels perpetuates racism in the first place. 
And she wonders, can you be a proud Southerner living in the South while also rejecting the iconography that embroiders the landscape? She has an answer for that, by the way, in this interview. A record label owner of Demon Records, a mother, a partner, and a social activist, Amy Ray is the real deal, and every number she writes adds more depth and power to the American songbook. I loved this conversation. We break it all down about Georgia, and Amy Ray, well, she's just awesome. You're going to love her. This is me and Amy Ray having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Berkeley and I and I was in the in uh, on Saturday just the streets were erupting here in the Bay Area uh-huh. and it was amazing and people were talking so much about Georgia in such fond and loving ways. Well, that's nice to hear for once. <laughs> <laughs> Normally I'm defending my state from the bicoastals <laughs> from the coastal elites. <laughs> were were you surprised that things had that in your state had started to shift or did you did you see that happening? I see it happening because I'm I'm a huge Stacey Abrams follower, and um, when she when that governor's race was so close, and then all the work that she did after that to with her organization to get the vote out and kind of just internally within the system to kind of work on voting advocacy and registration and legal battles, you know, to protect certain parts of voting. I was like, we're on our way, you know. To something. I was surprised actually that John Ossoff didn't win that race. Yeah. Because Purdue had a really bad debate and, you know, he's kind of a joker. But um, I think, I think, I mean, I'm curious about Georgia if like Georgia is the one place where people did cross, cross over and vote in on their ticket like differently for president than for the Senate races. I'm curious about that because I think there are some people that, don't like Trump, but still really like David Perdue, you know? Um, I don't know about, you know, Kelly Loeffler, why they would like, I don't know. That's, that's probably because he's, she's endorsed by Trump. So, and so is Perdue, but he's, he's got a reputation in Georgia with a lot of people that just know him for being just like a good guy and just a good old boy kind of thing. And I mean, I have a lot of Republican friends that love him that are like businessmen and stuff. Um, they just really love him. I, I don't get it, but because um, I've always, I've always just thought he was something off. But what you know? What do I know? But like the thing about Georgia is that like, you know, <laughs> like even if you don't like the policies of some of the people in politics, and if you don't know everything about the smarminess, they can seem really friendly and kind of easy to get along with. Because it's like frat boys, right? You know, so. For us that live here, you know, everybody's like, oh, my God, Governor Kemp's so awful. And he is in a lot of ways. But if you were in a room with him, he's pleasant to talk to. <laughs> you know, he's just like right. a nice, friendly guy, right? Right. But then he does a commercial with a rifle on his porch, you know. It's like weird, a weird, like, thing. So I, but I, you can feel things moving. I mean, I, I was scared Trump was going to win because I live in the rural area. And for me, my bubble is like everybody that loves Trump. But I felt, but I, but generally, I know it's a weird 
con- conflict, but generally I feel I felt the state shifting. So I also I'll, I kind of was like Trump Trump might win, but I think these Senate races were going to have a chance in. So it was the opposite of what I was feeling. Yeah. And when Georgia started to go to the numbers started building, I was just like ecstatic, you know. I mean, I'm bummed that there were a lot of other Senate races. I mean, I'm bummed that Lindsey Graham won. I don't get that. <laughs> I don't either. I don't, I mean, I'm, I don't know what happened in South Carolina. Cause I felt like that would be, you know, the vote was going to be coming out and there's so much money was spent there, but maybe money's not the thing. I mean, I hope it's not. Cause I hate, I hate spending what could feed a small village on, you know, a political election. Well, I mean, charisma is one thing and dishonest, just, you know, dishonesty is another thing. And I don't yeah. think Lindsey Graham has charisma or honesty. And, well, I, I feel know, like he used to have charisma. Yeah, he did. Know? Like early, early on. I don't remember. He was like, I don't know. There was just something about him that was charismatic and he was sort of independent in some ways in his thinking. But like Trump's hypnotized all these men <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Yeah, she's some kind of hypnotic bro love thing <laughs> that's happening. I don't know what it is. But yeah, it's like these guys that are typically independent, kind of, and contrarian sometimes to the Republican Party, just like are in lockstep with him. It's bizarre to me. Do you think it has something to do with with fear of because it wasn't it wasn't hard to get them on board. And so I wonder if that was just a fear-based thing. Fear of, yeah, just their jobs are on the line maybe. And they think if they don't align with Trump, those supporters are not going to put them back in office. I mean, that's the only thing it could be. It feels spineless to me, but. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's completely spineless. And also I would think like people like McConnell or Graham, they don't need Trump anymore. They can shed him like a skin and they won't do it. That's what you think. But like, then you hear people. I, I can't. Somebody was interviewed on PBS. I can't remember who it was. And they were just a, an, an analyst who was just talking about the Trump legacy continuing, and that he's actually going to be still really important to all these races for people because his followers, you know, because if you think about half half the country, almost half, you know, voted for him. Yeah. And he's going to have a movement beyond losing the election because that's just who he is. You know, he's yes. going to go back in, back in his hole and hide away. He wants to keep, he wants to be famous and have power and I think he'll work it, you know? I, it's, it's interesting. My whole life growing up here in the Bay Area, uh, especially like during the Reagan years, growing up during punk rock and you know, 80s punk rock and, you know, going after Reagan and um, having conversations like that, we would do that. We were completely uninhibited. But in the last four years, I was really careful, even here in Berkeley, about conversations I was having because this was so polarizing. Um, and I imagine that that's something that you have probably felt your whole life. I've never felt it before. I went, oh, okay. So that's what that's like to be wondering like who's around you and who's going to be inflamed by what you're saying. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you've sort of dealt with that sort of that balance? Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I grew up in the South and, my mom did, my grandparents did, my great-grandparents did. So um, I'm from a long line of like different political persuasions, but a lot of conservative sort of moderate Republicans. 
And except for my immediate family now, my dad's passed away and my mom's more of a Democrat and my siblings are radical left-wingers. But my cousins and, you know, just some of the people in my family. So even in family gatherings, it's always been, we just, we discuss things, but it's, it doesn't ever come to this fight kind of tone because we're all, in my family, luckily, pretty respectful of each other. I mean, I have some diehard Trump people that are like my favorite, you know, aunties and cousins and stuff like that. And I just leave it up to their kids to talk to them instead of me. <laughs> right. You know? right. But we talk, but I mean, we just, yeah, you dodge. I don't know. It's like an internal uh, translator that you have also to like sort of translate stuff so that you can find the good in it constantly and just really try to respect people and where they're coming from and understand that they're just as scared as of where you're coming from as you are from where they're coming from and just you always know that because you're unless you're like in a bubble of I mean there's certain parts of Atlanta that are you know radical kind of activist areas that you can live in those areas and never know the other thing that's happening you know but if you kind of live broadly in the south and you sort of understand the south and try to be part of it you have to just hold space you know and I mean, people, for, for me, people that know me, they know I can't, like, run away. I can't, like, hide my political <laughs> persuasion because it's really, it's obvious. And it's also just so much a part of who I am and what I do. So a lot of times it makes it easier because they kind of, they already know. So there's not that awkward thing. And they just give me a pass. Like, you know, if I'm having, I don't know, I was talking to my, the guy that fixes my motorcycle the other day and. He said, it was after I had worked on this rally with some activists in my little town, an anti-racism rally in this tiny little rural kind of conservative North Georgia town. And he said, um, I heard about the rally and I was like, oh yeah, you know, what'd you think? And he said, well, I, you know, you've always been political. I knew you'd do something like that. So he didn't have a comment, <laughs> you know, and then we got into a deeper talking about merit-based accomplishments and whether the playing field was evil, I mean, even in all this stuff. And that was an interesting conversation. But I can have, you know, friends of mine, we can have those conversations. They know I respect them. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't agree. But I, the only thing I can't tolerate is like just hate, hateful rhetoric, you know, like when people don't respect me, you know, or, uh, or are personal to me about things, you know, and my life or my family or, you know, what I do and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I have a harder time talking to my friends and trying to have, it's been harder for me to, in the last four years to sort of protect my feelings about the South in some ways with people that are so, I mean, I laugh about it, but it's true. It's like, it's hard for me to handle that kind of either fetishizing the South or pa or patronizing to the South as if everybody here is, you know, dumb and, or such a spectacle. It's like a, you know, an exhibit or something at the circus, you know, when it's like, we have a lot of, the reality is there's a lot of great activists here and, and a lot of people that fight really hard and people that are, super creative because they live in like small towns that are conservative and they're trying to get, you know, a small base of independently kind of moderate 
political people and they can't even go for the left wing thing. They just have to find people that are centrist just to work from there, just to get a candidate to run that's not super right wing. You know, like we, we you can't even run as a Democrat where I live. Mm. It's you have to run if you want to win. You either have to run as a Republican or an independent. Like it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, people do they try it, but it's never. You know, they don't even get close. So, the conversation where I live is a lot different. You know, and it's just like trying to. And I think every everywhere you live, it's different. And for me, that's the way I navigate it. Is I realize that, and I just try to make small inroads and create dialogue, and you know create change through small steps. I think racism is really the hardest, really the hardest thing for us to beat down here. You know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, so that's the main thing to work on for me. But when I see, you know, Stacey Abrams speak and the way she can uh, just distill sort of how this all works out there to people and and she takes she makes space for people that feel different she takes it into consideration in her organizing and takes into consideration the individual sort of activism of each place and kind of where they're at as far as organizing and and their attitudes I that's a great activist to me so I try to follow that lead in some ways and and really be be in that place. And also, you know, John Lewis was really for us in Georgia, you know, he's a men he was a mentor and his and his the way he operated was always respecting people. You know, and you can it's it's hard to see how you can be it's hard for some people to feel like how can you do that but also, you know, march in this way that's full of anger and energy and you know and like the sentiment of really dismantling all this really bad racism. And we need, at this point, it doesn't work to be peaceful anymore. You know, people that really feel that way. And I get it, you know, especially since I'm like a white person and I can get away with a lot more. But like, it's interesting because some of my black activist friends, I can't remember, I was in Alabama, I think. And they were like, you know, people... Some people get mad at us because we, it was when we were there working on the Confederate monument in a small town in Alabama. And they were like, you know, some people, we have a lot of different opinions about how to deal with this monument. And some of us want to just take a sledgehammer to it. And some of us want to like just relocate it. And she's like, you know, I'm black. And like, if I take a sledgehammer to that, I'm going to jail, you know, and like some white person might be able to get away with it and just right. get a slap on the hand. And she's like, but my my job, my family, everything's in jeopardy, you know, if I do that. So I want to work this other way and try to get it done in a way that protects me as well. And I thought that was interesting, I, you know, that she said that. It, it really makes you think, you know. So for me, like, I listen to the activists of color, and I also try to constantly navigate my neighbors and family and friends who are just feel differently from me and just come from a place of respect and love. I mean, it's hard to do sometimes. But yeah, it, I know. You know what I mean. I it's know. Hateful, you know. Yeah. And I, I always think like, but we're adults. And I think like I can have friends who are Republicans, like you were saying yeah. earlier. And I'm totally, I love them. And I think it's great. Um, and we can have dialogue, but you're right. But when it crosses over into 
hatred and intolerance. So that's, that's, I can't really, I can't have that conversation. No. Um, and I, I won't. No, so. <laughs> no. but, but no. we need, you know, I mean, honestly, I mean, I, maybe I'm idealistic, but I think we need good Republicans, quote unquote. I yeah. think we need people that are coming from some, a different, completely different space to help us solve problems. We, you can't see everything from your perspective and solve it. And you just can't, it, it won't work. You know, we need it all because it actually helps you define your perspective even more to have people that are different and makes you work your own, makes you troubleshoot it and work out and workshop it for the, for the places that it doesn't work to have someone questioning you all the time and challenging you. So that's kind of where I come from. And that's why I appreciate it. When we think about, I mean, when I think about you, I think you could live anywhere, but you've chosen to remain in your state and you've chosen to live in a rural area. Some people are, are in rural areas because that's, they don't have choices, right? This is where they are. Yeah. Um, but for you, you could pretty much do anything, go anywhere. And you've chosen to live there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really interesting. I don't know how I live anywhere else. I mean, it's a, it's a so in, ingrained in me um, and so much a part of my soul that I honestly just don't think I'd fit in anywhere else either. Mm. I mean, I just, I am a Southerner like to the core, you know, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want anybody to make me leave just because, you know, I can't, you know, I'm not, I want to own it and be here and change it, you know, and claim, claim the South for the people that are good here, you know, and, and take a stand here for that and not just leave because it's, you know, for me, an easier thing to do. Now, it would be different if I was, you know, living where I live and I was black, you know, I'm, I'd, it'd be, it might be dangerous, you know, so I'd have to leave. So I'm speaking from a place of like white privilege, you know, mm-hmm. where like I'm choosing this because I can, you're right. Like I can choose to live here. It's not always completely safe, you know, because I'm outspoken and people know where I'm coming from and they know where I live, but it's for the most part, it's pretty safe. You know, because I also have people that are protective of me, even if they feel differently from me, you know, and they have, you know, they have different perspectives, but they love me, you know, (laughs) because I've been here a long time and I do a lot of stuff in the community with them, soup kitchens and, you know, battered women's shelters and homeless projects, just all the things that we do in this community to help this community. We're all from different stripes, the people doing it. So... And so I don't, I feel like people are take care of each other here, but I also feel like if I was black or like, you know, gay and had no like anchor of like the career that kind of protects me and all this stuff and privilege and, you know, can live remotely in a way that is just not on the street, easy to kind of get to, it might be different. So part of the reason I stay is just because I think for me, I owe it, like I, part of my mission is to fight that racism and to fight that homophobia and to fight the sexism and do it where I live because I can, you know, and if someone else can't because it's not safe for them and they need to get out, then they should, you know. When you were a young punk, (laughs) did you, did you think about, did you think about leaving or was that something that never even occurred to you? I never thought about leaving ever Yeah. because the young punks that I hung around with, you know, we're living in North Carolina and making a stand there, you know, in Durham and uh, Chapel Hill and Durham and 
Raleigh and um, Asheville. And those are the people that I kind of, I played with a lot of North Carolina people and that was a punk rock scene that was kind of informed by the Southern, you know, I don't know, roots scene in a way. So all the punk rock that was out of Charleston, South Carolina or out of Durham, North Carolina, it was informed by, you know, this Southern style of music that was kind of gothic and had a tradition of, you know, things that were more from the banjo world, you know, within the punk music. And so, no, I mean, I, I had so much respect for like the queer scene in Durham that was just making inroads and, and already understanding the need to cross pollinate into politics around racism. And, you know, there was a lot and, and also immigration issues. So the queer scene I knew was immersed and, and the punk rock scene that I knew was not like, I mean, the Fugazi DC scene was great, but that had, you know, uh, some problems with homophobia and, and, and race stuff sometimes. Um, not Fugazi itself. Cause I, that band is amazing, but like that scene. Right. Um, and I felt like in Durham, the punk rock people that I knew were already organizing around immigration and migrant farmer issues. We're already organizing around race issues and we're facing it as queer people as, as like, this is part of what we do as queer punks. So it was kind of like the punk scene was so enmeshed in the queer scene where of people that I knew that I, I saw it as inspirational to stay here because of all the things that needed to be changed. And there was energy in that, you know, um, I mean, I love going to New York City and, you know, hanging out at the village and at the time and just getting to play CBGBs or something like that. But it didn't, the soul of it for me was down here where you're, you're against the grain, <laughs> you know, right. and you're, you're fighting because you still need to fight here. And it's not like I, it's not like I need the fight, but it's the only way I know maybe. So it, inf it, it informs the music in a way. You know, it'll be good when we don't have to. Yeah. You know, I mean, because <laughs> you're, you're right. Cause the tension, I mean, a lot, a lot of outsiders came to the Bay area from everywhere because it, be it became a kind of safe haven for, you know, the outsiders, the freaks, the weirdos, the artists, you know, us, it's like, that's, that's where we, those are all my people. And, yeah. you know, and, and see, so it would have been easy to do the Springsteen thing and say like, I'm getting out of town. <laughs> you know, this is like, I'm going, yeah. but you stayed. And, and I get what you're saying. And I, I spoke to Mark from Love Tractor and he was telling me about being an artistic band because Athens was, is mm -hmm. such an artistic um, city. And I had a real romance with it in the eighties. Um, like Pylon and Love Tractor and REM. And I thought, what's B-52s? What's happening in Georgia? Um, it's interesting how that such an artistic scene, and Mark was talking about the tension of frat boys um, in the midst of an artistic scene. But that scene was vibrant. Oh my God, uh, that scene, I mean, we were kind of on the heels of it. So I often pine that we weren't like right in the midst of like, you know, the barbecue killers and just, yeah. Kill Kenny Cats, just everything, Pylon, R.E.M., Love Tractor, everything that was like, it was all out of the art world, all of that. They were so affiliated with like the the filmmakers and the visual artists were so affiliated with the art part of UGA 
University of Georgia and that art department, as well as Athens. And, you know, it all was a marriage of just incredible stuff at the same time. I mean, it was, I mean, it was one of the most, I mean, I still think about that scene all the time, you know, and just, it, it, it was mind blowing, like the richness of it, you know, and, and I was right at the age where, I mean, we were kind of starting out, but we weren't totally aware, like right at the beginning. And then we started playing in Athens and things had already blown up there, you know, and gotten big and stuff. But I had friends that were at University of Georgia in the middle of all that. And it's just to hear them talk about it, you know, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Like just, it, it, I don't know. It's like, I'm always like, tell me stories, you know, cause it's pretty cool. Well, I mean, the movie, I know the movie had its faults, but to see bands like the Flat Duo Jets existing alongside Pylon and the B-52s, I thought, what are, not so much an art scene, but a rich art scene with texture, because the Flat Duo Jets have nothing to do with the B-52s sonically, but they certainly do spiritually. Oh, yeah, and they would be playing the same night, you yeah, know, right. <laughs> at the Uptown Lounge <laughs> with the 40-watt, you know, it was, right. I mean, we played with the Flat Duo Jets a couple times, and and we played with, you know, we played with different bands. Flat Duo Jets we played with a couple times, Driving and Crying. Yeah. And uh, and um, I was trying to think of who else we we had, we shared the stage with. But, um, I mean, bigger, later on we played with the Bs, the B-52s, but, um, and R.E.M. But, but the, I remember seeing the Flat Duo Jets when we played with them the first time. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Like, you know, it was like a force of nature. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And just how that can exist in a scene where you have like, yeah, the beef, the bees with like kind of the whole drag drag show quality of that and the comedy and the cabaret and just everything they did was so magical, you know. I don't know. It was amazing. But that's what I love about the southern punky kind of alt scene, is it it includes so much in it. Because you have to, because it's like, it's not going to be a big enough scene unless you create a scene where you can have all the outsiders in it. Because if you just relegate it to like, let's just have the queer gate, the queer punk music, you're not going to have that many. But if you have like, let's have the, the kind of garage punk and the country punk and the queer punks, let's have them all together because that'll make, then we have more people, you know? Right. It right. Really, it was necessity. Yeah, the team the team gets gets bigger. Yeah, <laughs> you know and you, you're, you're, you have more of a chance. That's <laughs> right, right. Back in Georgia, I didn't know a damn thing about Alabama. I didn't know a damn thing about South Dakota. I didn't know a damn thing about Oh Atlanta. I didn't know a damn. Bodies were hanging, bodies were burning, and my mama and daddy, they were earning. I was rocking the cradle, all in that fertile black belt. They were taking the blows for every toll of that liberty bell. I didn't know a damn thing. Didn't know a damn thing Rolling around In the country squire Westbound with no 
the Girl Scouts around the campfire. Underneath the generals on that rebel mountainside, those laser light shows where I was buzzing and kissing. I didn't know nothing about the black kids that were missing. Bombs were blowing, kids were dying, and all around me, I thought I was trying. Well, in the back of the school bus, I was reading my history, but it didn't say nothing about the kid sitting next to me. sort of the stuff like the, like I, you know I loved Husker Du and the replacements and I loved the the open wounded anger it really resonated with me as a 16 year old and um, I'm really curious to know whether it's the clash or it's Husker Du can you still listen to that music and feel the same thing you were feeling or do you observe it now from a totally different perspective because we're we're older uh, I can totally feel it I think because well the replacements you know Paul Westerberg is, I mean, that's a songwriter, songwriter. Like he's, you know, there's not, he's like a Paul Simon, you know what I mean? Or Joni Mitchell, like he's a songwriter. So for me, that's a, a no brainer. Husker Du, you know, I always had a more emotional reaction to them, that angsty, but I still listen to them all the time. So I must still have it in me. <laughs> and The Clash you know, feeds that activism part of me. Right. You know, and, and Joe Strummer feeds that iconic sort of, he's an iconic symbol of just of how to be a good activist and, and you know, how to be strong and, and just retain that energy, you know, and, and fight the good fight, you know, and, and in a populist, not the white supremacist populist way, but in the populist way of what it used to mean in the Woody Guthrie days, you know, and, so, yeah, I still, I mean, there's still bands that I look to in that way, you know, and um, the same with, you know, stuff that Kathleen Hanna did and the Butchies and Team Dresh, you know, it's and Patti Smith, you know, the women too that like kind of were always fighting that uphill battle and trying to, and just doing great activism and 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 rem- reminding us you know that like that they're we're here you know the women are here <laughs> the riot yeah. girl scene and all that you know and i still listen to those records and um i think the thing that a lot of that you know the the thing that's still hard is how segregated that act that activism is so a lot of, it's very white you know like i was watching rocky horror picture show the other night with some friends and I was like, oh my God, this is such a, 
this is such a brilliant movie, but it's just so white. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, like there's one black guy in it, you know, in the, at the party or whatever, you know, I mean, it's so queer and it's so other and it's so great, but it's so white still. And it's like, when, you know, I don't know, like it made me think, you know, like the bad brains were kind of a, a an anomaly, you know, and yeah. stuff. And I, so I think like, that's something we had not worked out yet during that time. And, and we still haven't, you know, we still don't understand. And I think it's going to take years of how to integrate, how to integrate country, how to integrate punk, how to integrate, you know, all kinds of music. I mean, the most integrated music is pop, yeah. you know, is the billboard, you know, hot 100. <laughs> that's the most integrated music. That's and, a really good point. I never really thought about that. You're right. Yeah. And, and, how do we, how can we do it in our individual scenes? You know, I, I'm still trying to learn. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, you look at, you know, whether it's bad brains or it's the Avengers out here in San Francisco mm. um, who are great. Uh, or you look at, you know, Nina Simone, you look at your favorite authors. Do you see a through line? I think about this a lot, a through line of your, of your heroes. Do you think like Nina Simone has a lot to do with the Avengers, which has a lot to do with, um, you know, I don't know, with the beats or in other words, the spirit of the creation, it, which is coming from a kind of rebellion over institutional um, conventional stuff. Um, do you see a through line through movie makers, actors, musicians, writers that you're, that are your favorites? Do you kind of see the common, the common thread? Yeah. I mean, I think I see it because they reference, you hear them reference each other. Right. You know, and, 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 um, you know, you hear Stephen King talk about musicians that have inspired him. You hear bands. I mean, every band that I love seems like at some point talks about Nina Simone. <laughs> so, you know, she's, yeah. I mean, Nina Simone and Billie Holiday are kind of through lines for so many people in, in so many different ways. So, you know, there's certain people that are just iconically inspirational to everybody. Um but yeah, I think, you know, I think you see it more and more as as um right like writers start to talk or you recognize more when they're writing of them mentioning their heroes that are poets or musicians and vice versa and you kind of start seeing the through lines by paying attention to that. You know, cuz for me it's you know, there's definitely like poets and things that I'll read will I'll be like, oh, okay, that, that definitely, because I read so much, I can't even remember, you know, I read something and I forget that I read it, I read so much, you know, and just keep, <laughs> I know. like, have, I have to just keep doing it, you know, going back to it. But I find that, yeah, I find like, uh, even nonfiction for me, it's all this energy of trying to like, work out what, what we're doing here and how to, fight racism and how to fight this and fight that and how to just be inspired to make art and just keep doing it, you know, and how does Stephen King write a million books? Like what is his, you know, and, and, and he's such a good writer and like, what does he think about? And, you know, take that apart. And then how does, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, Ibrahim X. Kendi, you know, distill the information that he distills, but still have this, kind of lively world of 
of the world that's not so intellectual. I mean, when you hear him talk, he's so aware of how to relate and to people and and family and just the dynamics of people generally. Then how does he write a book that's so like intellectual as well and such a scholarly thing, but also read comic books? I mean, it's right. I love all you know. I love to. I love the cross between you know thinking about Black Panther as a as a comic book hero and also movie and literature and music and just how that all mixes and that's just where we're at culturally because we have such a because people people think in those ways now right you know, you know like that website talk house you know that's that's so you know it's it's great because it just you're it's all the it's film it's literature it's bands it's podcasts you know it's like yeah it, which is really what our life is like now so yeah, I definitely see a through line. I see a through line for all the heroes and stuff, for sure. Yeah, this uh, the idea of the way the way that outsiders create art has always just spoken to me. Like I, I always tell people I never I never really felt comfortable anywhere. Even when I was accepted, yeah. I never felt comfortable. Um, I've always just felt like an outsider in my life, and um, like these conversations are, are feel comfortable to me because I feel like I feel like I understand you. I get where you're coming from, and I feel like. Um, creation is what is what really interests me. I'm a writer, and I, I just like the idea of creation and and getting better and better at creating. Do you do you feel that you when you look at your own work and we're talking about through lines? Do you feel that you are this iteration of you today in November is different? I don't want to say better because I think that's a weird term, but different than you a year ago or a month ago. I mean, I hope so. You know, I think that's the that's the thing, right? That we try yeah. to do, right? Evolve. And um, yeah, I mean, that's my goal is to, I mean, my, I have to say my goal is to improve. I mean, I, I do want it to be different because I don't want to stagnate, but I want it to be better as well. But I can accept the fact that sometimes it's going to change for the worse for a while to get to a better place. Like my writing may have a weird slump in it when it just is not very good but it's only because I'm prototyping something that I'm trying to get better at and I have to start somewhere, you know? And so I just, I definitely accept those. And I think you're, yeah, I mean, while I want to get better ultimately, <laughs> it is, the goal is to be moving and not stagnating and evolving. And it may take a dip, you know, for sure. I'm like in totally in a moment where I'm trying to do something kind of different. And I just, you know, I'm writing some really, bad songs that have to stay on the on the on the garage band for a long time <laughs> you know but and it's frustrating at times but then I'm like that's okay you know because that's I if I don't do this I'm just going to write the same thing over and over again so you yeah. what you're saying is you have to respect the slump I say you have to respect the slump I do I do and the writer's block you have to respect because I think if you have like writer's block um, I don't really believe in it totally. Like I think that it means that you need to read for a while and it need, and then you need to like just do writing exercises and just get to the funda back to the fundamentals for a while to clean your brain out, you know? Right. And so no time should be wasted is, is the point of that, you know? Not that you – yeah, so like don't – it's like if you're having a writer's block, don't just like get frustrated and not do anything. Like read, you know? 
Like if you want to write, you got to read. So <laughs> just read more and write down and do writer's exercises or something kind of technical, you know, that, yeah. that may seem boring, but it's actually, you're just exercising the muscle and you need to. So that's what I do now, you know, for the slump. <laughs> the slump. I have, you know, I've interviewed authors and bookstores when we used to do such things. Mm. And you, when people ask questions, uh, sometimes an author will say, so I threw away 20,000 words and the look of horror on people's faces, like, wait, what? But, but I bet there's a lot of songs that people will never hear that you've written that, that you just know have to be put to the side. It's part of the process. For sure. I mean, and it's, and I'm doing anyone around me a favor to do that, to put it aside. Cause I mean, when a writer says that they threw away 20,000 words, I have to say, I'm a little more like, you know, right. <laughs> it makes it cause that's like, cause that writing process is a mystery to me. I mean, that kind of writing, I call it secular writing where it's like not a song. Cause I, I just don't even understand how people do it. Like everybody's like, you should write a memoir, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I no, like I, I have too much respect for that to do that right now. I haven't learned enough you know, to do that. Like I haven't learned enough about the mechanism of writing. You know, I can try, but it's people, great authors, you know, Louise Erdrich and I don't know, like I'm trying to think of all the people I'm reading right now, but Louise Erdrich is one person that I, is one of my favorite writers of all time. And I just can't, I can't even, or a poet, Natasha Trethewey, I just like, I, when I read their stuff, I'm just like, I don't even know how they got there. <laughs> like I can't even, you know, it, it paralyzes me. And so the idea of writing that kind of stuff. And if someone, if, if Louise Erdrich said she threw away 20,000 words, I'd be like, where is it? I want to read it, <laughs> right. you know, cause that's, you know, but I could, but I, but that's, you're right. It's the process and they know. They know in the same way that, you know, and, and it's really instructive, I think, to hear you say this because a lot of times people will say, I, I'm a college professor and I'll tell my students, don't hit delete when you're writing, just get as much clay as you can. Cause you can work with it. Um, Cause a lot of my students will say, I wrote paragraphs and I just kept erasing them. I'm like, don't erase that. You got to keep them. Um, do you finish the songs that you know probably are not the best ideas to finish? Or do you recognize in the process, maybe I need to just sort of bail out here. I don't bail out completely ever. I don't finish it, but I always keep it. Like, I don't believe in deleting it either. I keep it because it might be a piece of that will work in a different song. Like the one, there might be a, a seed in there that I didn't realize and I'll be working on a different song and I'll be like, I need a bridge or I need this. And I'll go back and listen to all my tapes and, voice memos and whatever I have. And I log things, you know, I just log everything I do. I, I, the process of like pouring it out and then I go back and I listen when I'm just can't pour anything else out and I log things and I might make comments like this might be useful in this type of song, or this is a good idea, but you need to learn how to say it better. So I'll, and I'll go back and look through my notes and I might, I, I just go, I just mine those notes for like, things that'll work in other spaces because you just don't know yet. So something that might be pretty bad, there might be like one line in it. That's really good. 
that's the one line you needed. (laughs) Right. And that's all you needed. It's like one word for a crossword puzzle. It's like, this is all I needed. I needed that word. I couldn't think of it. So I'd never throw anything away. I just, I just make sure I keep track of it somehow. Right, because something because something was making you create. So like you got to sort of comb it a little bit critically afterwards, get that editorial distance, and go, oh, that's the one little piece I'll keep, and the rest of it, the carcass yeah. remains where it remains. Yeah, um, yeah. I was really interested to see the on uh, the new song, especially with the the idea of the monuments, because I think that one of the great things that happened over the summer, which was not a happy summer, um, is that people became aware of Juneteenth. People came, became mm. aware of um, these monuments in a way that they hadn't before. Um, my students, I had them do um, Fight the Power 2020 as a literary analysis. I thought like, let's do it. Let's do it on that. And awesome. that was really cool because a lot of them talked about, I didn't know what Juneteenth was until two months ago. Um, you know, I didn't know who Fred Hampton was until nine minutes ago. And it's like, okay, well, we're talking about it. Um, the conversation with the monuments became very interesting. It became mainstreamed in a way that it had never had before. Is that what made you sort of visit that as subject matter? Or was that something you've been thinking about for a while? I have, I've always thought, of, I've thought about it, not always, but I guess I've thought about it since. It's been, a, I think, years of course years but it's been like this for for me like this kind of learning curve of uh how to be an anti-racist in some ways and just making peace with like the way i was so in love with the iconic icons statues ideas songs movies everything that had to do with the south in its rebel confederate kind of vibe you know because i I, even if I felt like I was not a racist in high school, like I was very like, you know, fascinated by fighting for, you know, justice and everything like that. But at the same time, you know, I had no problem with like the Confederate flag. I mean, I was just mixed up, completely mixed up. And so it's been a long road from that to where I am now. And so I've all, I think if you live here, you think about it a lot because the flag, the Confederate flag for us has been an issue for years and years and years and years and years. You know, it's like the ever present issue. And even if it goes away, it doesn't go away because there's always going to be people that adopt that symbol now. Right. Because it's, it's, I mean, you know, there's a problem when white supremacists that live in Montana adopt the Confederate flag. And they don't even live in Georgia and they never even seen Georgia. It's like that symbol is not a symbol of Georgia, of the South. That's a symbol of white supremacy. You know, it's like because people in the South aren't you. It's like the people over there are using it. They're white nationalist movements. So I think like I've thought about it for a long time and, and I and, you know, spent years and still do going to like our great Stone Mountain, you know, park and with the huge carving of all the Confederate generals on the side of the mountain. And, you know, that's just been a place that my whole life I've gone there. I've gone there for Girl Scout camp. I've gone there for running, for biking, for climbing the mountain, for in high school, for laser light shows and partying and everything that we ever do. But it was also a stronghold of the KKK, even in the seventies, you know, it was like a campground that they would use. So I've always wrestled with, and, and that mountain, of course, now it, it's in an area where the demographics have shifted so radically that when you go there, 
white people are in the minority of the people that are there at enjoying the mountain, which is what's so cool about it. <laughs> Cause yeah. you can, you can go jog up the mountain and work, get a workout in and everyone around you is from, I mean, it's, you know, 50 different countries represented. I mean, it's one of the most richest diverse areas in Georgia, Clarkston and stone mountain uh, where the Fuji soccer team came from that area, everything. So that pre creates a whole other thing of like, People that, you know, it's like, let's boycott Stone Mountain, but it's like, no, we, we can't anymore because this is like, this is like a place that people can go enjoy for like next to nothing and have this space of recreation that's, you know, not threatening because it's, they outnumber the white people. But it's a symbol that's constantly under the microscope because Anytime a white supremacist rally happens, they want to go to Stone Mountain and do it. <laughs> you know, it's like that's their place, even though they, you know, don't ever go there in their normal life. Right. So we got to figure that out. So I've thought about it a lot. And, and I wrote and the song, you know, I focused on that as part of it because of a group that we had done some work with is the Indigo Girls, um, just trying to stand in solidarity with this group called Project Say Something out of Florence, Alabama. And Florence is right near Muscle Shoals. It's a kind of an interesting little town, not that different from where I live. And um, they have been working to relocate this Confederate monument to a more appropriate place, like a cemetery that has Confederate graves um, for a long time. And that, and they're, and they're, project has been just working on dismantling racism for even longer and doing really cool archival work in town of of the black population and the history of the black population and it's you know near muscle shoals and the music isn't you know connected to that um and it's been it's such a creative structure the way they're doing it i mean like i think for three months they had an action every day Wow. Basically, either online or in the streets. And they maintained that energy. And a friend of mine wrote me and was like, none of the national press is covering this. Like, they're just trying to get more people involved. And we all go out there and, like, play or do something. We're just trying to get more and more people involved. And so we did. But I was so inspired by what they're doing that I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to – I had started the song, and I was like, I'm going to finish it, and it'll be, you know, really informed by this you know, and my own wrestling with like, how do I talk, to, you know, when I'm talking to people about, if someone's talking, I guess it's like, it's almost like I'm talking to myself, you know, you miss the old ways, but it's not like what you think it is of like the pictures of your dad in Florida or your grandparents in old Atlanta of just that kind of simplicity of like living with chickens in the backyard and going fishing down the dirt road it's also the underbelly of like the lynchings and the and everything named after a plantation and slavery and it's just so sad i mean the lynching alone just the history of lynching it's just it's mind-blowing you know isabel wilkerson in her book cast has a whole section about lynching and the postcards they made of lynchings and how popular they were for people to buy and send to people and it's just even if you know about it, when you hear her talk about it, it's like, whoa. Like, hit, like the Nazis didn't even make postcards. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. so, so I think about that. And I think when I think about like trying to steel myself to, to like change the brainwashing of like the Confederate symbolism 
in my brain and my heart. I think about those things and it helps me be stronger to not attach myself to those symbols. Because even for me, left-wing queer punk activist, you know, whatever, I have this weird spot for like gone with the wind. You know, it's like, it's bad. I mean, that's, that's my, the song is my confession. You know, it's like, I'm, this thing runs, like really rules me deep inside. And I have, and, and I know if you can, you know, any number of people I know that say they're not racist, I will quest I will take them to task over that because I know what we have inside us, you know, and it is, we have benefited from white supremacy. We, and we still embrace the symbols of it without even knowing it. It's just the language of it, our metaphors, everything, you know, white and, 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 and light and dark and bad and everything, you know, that we do. And so it's like, this song is like tackling that inside me as well as saying like I'm making a statement and it's hard for me to make and I know it's hard you know so I'm I'm coming from a place of like I understand that you don't want to like remove this statue or tear these symbols or get rid of the flag I understand it but like we got to do it like it's time it's time you know yeah. this is the, this is the come to Jesus moment for you. You got to you got to do it, you know, no matter how hard it hurts and how addicted you are to it. This is the addiction you got to break. It's interesting because it's it's it could have gone two ways because it's it's introspective but it also could have been a punk song too because <laughs> it has that sure. that you know that <laughs> tension is there. Um yeah. not that it came out the way that it did. Um I don't want to say is that surprising because that that's probably not the right way of putting it, but what were you sort of when you decided, Oh, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be this kind of introspective um, conversational thing. Um, did the musical choice of going the direction that you went, was that very clear from the beginning? You know, it was actually, cause yeah, it was. And I was surprised at it, but I was like, I'm going to go with it. I've written any number of songs that are more rock, rock and kind of punky that are, about racism and this is fine. I, I you know, right. And, and I think I was thinking about Nina, obviously, and Billie Holiday and, and, and just Georgia on my mind and kind of just the old songs and trying to turn it around in some way, you know? And, um, I mean, I'm always, infl- I'm always inspired by strange fruit. I think it's one of the most brilliant songs ever written in, in history. So, yeah, you know, I was thinking about the, the, somberness of that and the softness of it you know and and how the thing about the south that you know the inner the energy of conflict and anger is one thing but the other thing about being here is the stillness of it you know and that space and stillness really allows you to contemplate all the bad things (laughs) you know that need to be changed you know so that's where it came that's where it came from what will what is your sort of immediate plan while we're still in this sort of uh covid age are you obviously touring is not happening um so is it just a very creative period for you is that is that really what you're going to focus on in the next next few months or yeah i mean it tries to, you know it tries to be creative that's what it wants to be this period <laughs> um i you know i have a 7 year old and a partner and so i have family life that's demanding because of school and stuff right now, you know, and all that. So, and I'm trying to really keep space for that just because 
I'm never home this much. I never have been since I was right. you know, 20 years old. So, um, so that's good. But yeah, I'm trying to write like I, we've got, so my solo group, basically I'm trying to like write. And when I finish the song, we start recording it remotely. And so all of us have like little setups and, and I've got a producer that has always worked with me on stuff and he's like a collaborator. And so we just start on the next song. So we're almost done with the next one. Um, and then I'm working on the next songs, writing the next songs. And then Emily and I are um, working on putting together this, like one of those like streaming concerts where not streaming, but um, like remote concerts where you piece it all together and then people can watch it. Um, so it's not streaming. It's um, I don't know what you call it, <laughs> what they're calling it these days, but it's basically like we've, so we've got all our drum tracks and now Emily and I have to go in the studio and like record you know, 20 songs and then the keyboard player does it. And we try to kind of maintain that live feel and spontaneity. It's interesting process, how you do that, but also be piecing it together. So we're doing that. And um, yeah, and we're just, I mean, Emily and I are just uh, trying to do streams every now and then. I mean, it's a weird, definitely a weird world. Yeah, you know, and I guess you're te you're probably teaching remotely too. Yeah, but yeah. So I, the teachers that I know, oh my God, it's so hard. I know <laughs> some. I know a bunch of college professors because where I live, there's also a small school that's part of the University of Georgia school system, but it's the military school. Okay. That's trying to become a liberal arts school, and I know like a couple of statistics professors and art teachers and history professors and stuff, and they. I'm glad I'm not them. It's just. <laughs> They're like struggling because it's, I guess, just not having the being able to just, just talk, you know, in this way. Some of the art professors are doing in person because you can't do dark rooms, room stuff, you right. know, remotely and stuff like that. So they're just whatever, like probably exposed all the time. So we'll see what happens. But I'm just trying to maintain, like, do every, what everybody else is doing and just, you know, stay creative. And make the use of the time and remember that it's kind of like you you can't always have this kind of time, you know, in your life. So you make take advantage of it. And I feel really lucky because I got a good place to live and I got food and I saved up money. You know, it's like yeah. all that stuff that's that could be a real hard. And um, so Emily and I, I mean, one of our main things is like during this time, it's important to alleviate suffering when you see it, you know, basically, and, and then get involved politically and try to, you know, work for change. So we really, this election for us in Georgia, that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next seven weeks is just hitting it and trying to do whatever needs to be done, phone banks or whatever to like get it, get the people to show up and vote in large numbers, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's massive. It's a size, it's a seismic, it's a seismic runoff. Um, yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I feel like, you know, I feel like we can do it. I, I mean, I, Stacey Abrams feels like we can, so I'm yeah. gonna, <laughs> you know, and, and she doesn't always just say that without meaning it. Like she's pretty good about reality. Yeah. She has so, my favorite quote. She said the other day, she was talking about the election and she said, this is so important. Call up someone you broke up with. Call, 
like, yeah, this is like the time to bury all hatchets. This is more important than a busted up romance. That is hilarious. She's so funny, man. I love her. She's funny. I love her. So do you do you like being home though? Is it okay? Like you're you No, yeah, I do. I mean, I miss my pals from the road. A lot of people that I won't get to see for a long time, you know. Yeah. So that's hard for me. But um I'm kind of a hermit naturally, so I'm not sure my life shifts that much, you know. My part my wife, my partner, she's like, This is kind of right down your alley. This- <laughs> this whole situation. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, except that there's thousands of people dying and all the suffering. Yeah. I, but I miss my friends on the road though. I will say I, I miss my band. I miss getting in the van and touring with my solo band. I miss, you know, seeing all the crew from the Indigo Girls stuff. Uh, you know, that's, it's, you know, it's your family. Yeah. So it's, it's a weird reality. Well, I hope next time that you come on the show, you'll have your family back. You'll be on the road and we'll have a, a Senate in our favor. Oh, me too. You're such a good, uh, you know, a good host. A good oh, thank you. And a good talker as well. Like you're, you. the things that you say. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank yeah, you. No, I, awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I've always wanted to talk to you. I, I saw you guys at the Zellerbach in 89 in Berkeley, and it remains oh, God. one of my favorite live experiences ever. Wow, that was such – I remember that show. I remember that so well because that, that was a time in my life that I remember all the shows because they were just – every single one was, like, you know, exciting and kind of monumental to us. What a show. I think David Wilcox opened up. Yeah, I think David – did David? Yeah, I think David did, yeah. Yeah. Loved him. Loved him. Oh, amazing. And you guys were, of, of course, incredible. But anyway, I've, I've always wanted to chat with you, and I'm, I'm so glad we, we talked. Me too. I really appreciate it. Amy Ray, the best. Isn't she great? My God. Uh, Amy-Ray.com is her website, or IndigoGirls.com will also uh, do the trick. Go to both and uh, pay them a visit and see what's going on. Go to my website, AlexGreenOnline.com, and uh, see what's happening with me. Um, The first thing you're going to say is, boy, you should sure update that site. (laughs) I think you're all gray now, dude. Well, you'd be right. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use. Leave us a little uh, comment or two. Give us a rating. Subscribe. Tell all your friends. It's a lot of work. It sounds like a ton of stuff I've just given you, but you and I both know it's just a push of four buttons. Or the push of the same button four times. I don't know how you're wired up. Whatever. Tell all your friends. Come on. Spread the word about Stereo Embers, the podcast. We appreciate it. And visit Bombshell Radio online at bombshellradio.com. Check us out and see what makes us tick. Thank you, as always, for listening to the program. Let's close the show with a full listen to Amy Ray's new song, Tear It Down. Enjoy it. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. You say I miss the old ways, but not like that. 
dog whistling fool of a king Don't you know that old Dixieland Is more than dirt roads and simple ways Tear it down, tear it down That ragged cross ring Yep, it's I long to 